I think one thing that came as a surprise to us when doing the research was the extent to which people use Bitcoin only as a conduit to the US dollar and not as a means into itself because the community was very focused on Bitcoin and they wanted Bitcoin to succeed and they, they held Bitcoin. So of course they wanted uh, its appreciation. Uh, but I think the majority of Venezuelans were trading local Bitcoins, uh, for example. Some of them believed in Bitcoin and kept Bitcoin, but the ability to hold dollars was much dearer. You're listening to Because of Bitcoin, a podcast that shares the personal stories of how Bitcoin is having a real impact in people's lives, including mine. I'm your host, Mauricio Di Bartolomeo, the co-founder and CSO of Ledin. And without further ado, let's get started with today's story. There's a reason that Venezuela ranks at the top of most crypto adoption charts, and that is because our local money is broken. And money breaks all the time. In fact, it's currently breaking in Nigeria and in Lebanon. The process whereby money breaks is actually very similar across these seemingly different cultures. And as Gershom Law says, good money drives out bad money. People in these situations end up rushing to the next best currency that's available to them. And most times, that ends up being the US dollar. But since Bitcoin's inception, more and more people across the world have found it and come to it. If we want more people to find Bitcoin and to continue to use it, we need to better understand why and how they're using it. The Open Money Initiative carried out research on the ground in places like Venezuela and other countries to find out how real people were using Bitcoin. And its findings are incredibly insightful. Alejandro Machado is one of the project's co-founders, and he's joining me today to discuss his findings and what we can learn from them. Ale and I actually are both from Venezuela and are part of the more than 6.1 million people that have left the country since authoritarianism took over. I was keen to learn about his decision to leave, how he found Bitcoin, and the research project that brought him back. Okay, Ale, my friend. So good to see you again. How are you, man? Likewise, man. All good, all good. I always like to start the show by asking people to tell us a little bit about your childhood. What were some of your favorite memories growing up in Venezuela? You grew up in Barquisimeto, I grew up in Valencia. They're not so far away. So I think what I most remember from my childhood is always being involved in communities, be it you know the school that I went to uh, or the family that I grew up in that was uh, big and we, like the extended family, usually got together for parrillas, which is uh, barbecues. My grandpa would, would be kind of the, the captain of the, of the parrillas and then we would all meet at, at his place. The fact that the collapse of Venezuela was not something that we uh, anticipated. Like we, we did leave Venezuela in 2011, which was relatively early uh, compared to like the last wave of migration that, that happened that actually made Venezuela into one of the, the top countries uh, where people migrate from. All, all we could you know, plan for, dream about was staying in Venezuela. No one really wanted to leave. Some, some of my uncles left for you know, school, like they went to grad school or, or they did some MBA program here or there, but then they always wanted to come back and they did. We, we never really expected to leave until things started getting really, really tough. It's, it's, a, it's, it's very unfortunate. I think people lose sight on how, how little Venezuelans ever thought about migration. My, when we left to go to Miami, we were so young, my brothers and, my brothers and I, that my parents didn't even tell us we were moving. 
they told us we were going to spend the summer. And this was, this was actually, we went in 99, which was right after Chavez took office. But I, I distinctly remember the conversations around my school, the conversations around my family, around the time when Chavez took power. Um, do you remember the, that, that period of time? Like, did that have any impact in your family or your personal life? I remember very faintly the fact that no one in my family liked Chavez and, uh, or at least no one that I, that I knew really well. I'm sure that we had some distant relatives that, uh, were into it, but I remember their disappointment during the election night when, when Chavez, uh, won that election. But I was a kid, like I, I didn't realize, you know, the, obviously the implications of that. No one, one was actually realizing the whole impact of it, but I do remember that the mood was not great that that Christmas. And then I think what what I do remember right after that was uh, attending demonstrations uh, against Chavez in the in the coming years. Like when I was 12 years old, I went to demonstrations. That's actually like it's funny, like you you would that's around the time where you start having interesting girls and uh, you'd go to a marcha to a, to a demonstration and and you know, <laughs> look around and see girls from outside your school to, to, to like, see what's out there. And, uh, and, uh, you know, you, you, you had this like little, like mini dates <laughs> at demonstrations, which is a bit funny, but, uh, yeah. It's funny you mentioned that because protests were so commonplace in Venezuela that they did. I, I remember they became social events. So my brother actually met his wife at a protest. Oh, there you go. Well, <laughs> what, at what point did you make the decision to leave Venezuela? And was that a decision that you made by yourself or was that a family decision? Well, so in 2011, I was uh, starting my fourth year of uh, university and uh, there was the option to do it abroad. I think I was a bit burnt out from Venezuela protests, like uncertainty, the fact that you couldn't go out uh, without your parents frantically calling you every 15 minutes to see if you were arriving home. Around the same time that I that I was eyeing the decision of uh, going abroad, but it was only for, for a year, right? Like a year tops. My parents were also considering, the, I think they were starting to see the writing on the wall that the university where I was studying already was losing teachers and already was uh, becoming a bit less competitive academically. And uh, you could see like, obviously Chavez getting more authoritarian. Things didn't really spell very good fortune for, for the future, like the immediate future of the country. And I, I have two young, younger siblings. Uh, they're twins at their same age, they're seven years younger. My parents, I think, saw that they couldn't get through college in the same way that I could with with all of the things that I that I did. So they they said, well, let's try. We we have Spanish citizenship from my grandparents because uh, my from my mom's side we are Spanish. Since I was going to Sweden, I think they also did a similar thing to 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 your family where they said, well, let's let's go check this place out and let's see if this can be a place for my siblings in in this case to. Uh, go to university or like to finish school first. They they had a couple of years to get through still, and then to to go to university and then to develop in the professional world. So I think that was, but uh, that, that was kind of the motivation. Or it was it was it was a family decision, but pushed by factors like the situation of the country was kind of already pushing us out in a, in a way. 
Migration is a very, very difficult process. Actively deciding that you have to leave your whole family behind and the place you grew up in is almost like losing a loved one. It's understandable why Alejandro's parents made the decision to leave. Caracas at the time had the unenviable title of being the most violent city in the world. Where in this journey, because you're talking about 2011 and, and Bitcoin was really only two years old at the time. Um, mm. when, when do you find out about Bitcoin? What were your first impressions? So I also have this faint memory of uh, reading about Bitcoin on Hacker News. I studied computer science and of course I was uh, very much into Hacker News. I, I was reading a timeline from like a, like a Twitter account that uh, summarized and like, or like, you know, gave, gave the highlights of the most highly rated or the, the most, like, you know, highly commented articles. And, and I think I saw the white paper then. Didn't think much of it at the time. I was involved in artificial intelligence. I think maybe around 2016 or 2017, I started to get more interested because I think we had already seen very high inflation in that period. Venezuela's currency became very quickly devalued. I think what, what struck me was I already knew that like Bitcoin was a thing. Like I, I knew that you could hold money electronically and not have a bank account, right? Like you, you, if you own a computer, if you have a piece of uh, hardware that has a processor and has a memory and is connected to the internet, then you can have this asset that you can transfer to other people. And there is a market for this asset. I never really made the connection between this ability and the conditions that we were in or that the Venezuela was in. The fact that we, like everyone was craving for the US dollar, but they had no way to access accounts abroad, like most of the people, right? Like some people had accounts elsewhere, but I think when I made the connection, and this was around 2016 or 2017, that there's this thing that Anyone with a computer can have uh, and it can transfer and uh, nobody can deny you the ability to, to do that as long as you still have that piece of hardware and that internet connectivity. And the fact that the, the, the money that is operational in your country does not work, then of course it would follow that if you could only get a lot of people in the country to use this electronic thing, that you know has better properties than the local money that was kind of imposed on you or that you happily used until very recently but now it's become worthless then you know why wouldn't you switch right like uh, and i think that that became a bit of a of an open question in my mind what was it that made it click for you you know at this point i think you were you, you were abroad you were no longer in venezuela uh, when when you're reading about bitcoin what was the sort of connection that made you tick? You did work shortly after on the Open Money Initiative, which is, I think, around the time where you and I connected. So can you talk a little bit about what, what, that, what was that journey like to kind of connecting those dots and, and deciding to do this work and focus back in Venezuela? Yeah, so even though I lived abroad, I wanted to keep connected to Venezuela somehow. And I found uh, in the Caracas Chronicles community kind of a place to do that, to, to be able to talk about Venezuela in English because I, I wanted to tell my friends about it and I wanted to connect the world that I was living in, which is working in English, living in English with my past. And I wanted to show, you know, what to, to a, like a foreign audience, what, what Venezuela was like and uh, to tell stories of Venezuela by Venezuelans. So 
I did write a few articles with the Caracas Chronicles team. In my work, I never really got the opportunity to, um, until that point, to be more involved in, in Venezuela. So I, was, I think I was feeling a bit powerless, of like just being like writing articles and not doing a lot for, for Venezuela at the time and like being abroad and, you know, just like having this immense privilege. And that was around the time that Bitcoin clicked. And that was around the time also, very importantly, that the Petro uh, Maduro's purported cryptocurrency was launched, right? Or, you know, that it, was, it was announced. The Petro was a cryptocurrency token project launched by the Venezuelan government that was sold as a token that would be backed by the government's oil reserves. Venezuela. So, um, of course, I think the first thing I did there was denounce the attempt of the Petro as, you know, of a mockery of, of like the cryptocurrency technology and the values of, of the cryptocurrency community. But also, I think what like the call to action there was, okay, well, I mean, if, if they're going to try this thing, I think the community needs to have a response. Like, what, what is the cryptocurrency community, the Bitcoin community going to do with the fact that Venezuela wants to further centralize their money and and just have it on government databases that rather than, you know, the, the, the little bit more decentralized system where where the banks are, are the ones handling it. But is there a better way? Like, can, can we encourage people in Venezuela to to use Bitcoin and to show them the benefits of using Bitcoin? And, and is there a fit between what Bitcoin offers today and what Venezuelans need right now? And I think that's where the whole Open Money Initiative project came to be born. We were craving kind of a justification for, for the tech that was a bit stronger than just, oh, well, like, this is a way that I can make money, right? I, we wanted to be able to see if uh, someone could use this or, or people were actually already using it for, for things that you know, were, were a bit more necessary for, for day-to-day life. So that we did a research project uh, with the Open Money Initiative my friends, Jill Gunter, uh, James Downer, Jamal Montessor. We launched this initiative. You know, we, we did some interviews and we uh, went into Colombia and Venezuela later on to talk to people who were actually using Bitcoin for avoiding the capital controls or, or, the, or the Forex controls. And they were using it as a bridge mostly, right? To be able to access the US dollar and to be able to work in international markets. We found that the industry needed a bit more players that would cater to the to the people who just wanted to use money in the way that everyday people use their money not necessarily uh, I, I just don't want to use a, a specific service to earn more money but I, I just want to be able to keep my money safe I just want to be able to have a place where my money I can easily transfer from here to there or I can just use it internationally I, I remember reading your first report from the open money initiative and I remember it, it stuck out to me that you guys said things like, Stop building apps on iOS 12 or 14 or 11. You need to build apps that can be managed and supported by mobiles. Most people run on Android down there. My question to you is, did you expect to find what you found when you went out to do those reports? So I, I did suspect some things. I did learn some, some things that were new. For example, again, I, I'll mention, I think I was a bit naive in uh, expecting people to be able to just pick up Bitcoin and, and start using it. And I did know, for example, that uh, most people had very old mobile phones. That, that, that part was not new. I think it was just mostly validation. 
I think one thing that came as a surprise to us and to me in particular when doing the research was the extent to which people use Bitcoin only as a conduit to the US dollar and not as a means into itself because the community was very focused on Bitcoin and they wanted Bitcoin to succeed and they, they held Bitcoin. So of course they wanted uh, its appreciation. But I think the majority of Venezuelans were trading on local Bitcoins, uh, for example. I think they, they saw this opportunity uh, and some, some of them believed in Bitcoin and kept Bitcoin, but the ability to hold dollars was much dearer. What stood out to me the most when I was reading the Open Money Initiative report was the degree of diversity among the people that were adopting Bitcoin in Venezuela. It was around this time when I was connected to Alejandro by our common friend, Alex Gladstein. He's the chief strategy officer of the Human Rights Foundation and was guest number one of this podcast. And coincidentally, Alejandro happened to be doing research in Carora, which is where my mom's from. What do you think, based on the work that you've done, are the biggest barriers to crypto adoption in Latin America? And this includes both stablecoins and Bitcoin. Well, I think lack of knowledge, lack of knowledge that this is a possibility, I think is, is maybe the biggest barrier. There seem to be a lot more people who are banked and who are familiar with the banking world and are willing to use banking products than people who are, uh, well, I'm going, I'm, banks don't work for me, so I'm going to use this alternative instead. I think we, we still have to bridge that gap and we still have to show people that a bank may not be as trustworthy as they say they are or as they have proven not to be. Well, the fact that there's this other company that follows these, you know, set of guarantees and these rules, like, for example, your proof of reserves, uh, the, the, the way that you show like, that you build trust with your customers at not being a bank, being a, just a trustworthy foreign company that, you know, someone in Venezuela might find a lot more appealing than, than putting their money in, in a local Venezuelan bank, even though it's, it's called a bank and it's regulated by authorities locally, which you would think would mean more security. I think it's trite to say like, oh, we need more education, but we, we, we do, but we, I think more than anything, need products that prove to be resilient and, and prove to be really good and better than local alternatives in times of crisis. And I think with every crisis, uh, you know, now in Lebanon, for example, I'm sure that a lot of people are finding, discovering value in, in keeping accounts abroad and keeping accounts in, in crypto companies and in, in crypto itself, like in the protocols themselves. So um, I think we, we still have a long way to go. Do you think that the issues we're experiencing in Latin America can be fixed by a creation of better money technology or better privacy technology? Or do you think this is simply a lack of education that doesn't allow for the understanding of the value of these technologies? It's a very difficult question because one fact is that most Latin Americans believe the dollar is stronger than their national currencies. And I think believe it for good reason, historically, by experience. Or there might be a lot of value in the government being able to issue its own currency if it were adequately managed. But I think if you can advertise and, and successfully manage uh, a, a company and a product that gives people access to US dollars in Latin America, which is Again, what most people want. So if, if you, as, as a company, create that path, right, to, to, for, for moving from national currency to the dollar, and then you also have paths to go to other assets like Bitcoin, as people start learning about this and, and making up their own minds about it, they will traverse the, the paths themselves. I, I don't believe in like 
preaching to to people about Bitcoin too much. I I, I very much believe in, like you said, in, in creating products that solve a specific need, uh, a specific desire, which is okay. I want to be able to access U.S. dollars. Being the trustworthy partner that the bank that is well managed should be, like the bank that is. Uh, uh, you know that 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 supposed like in in the in the public imagination, the bank is is some something that you know keeps your money safe. It, it's it's a partner for you to like issue. It issues you a loan, and you can build a business, or or you can you can buy a car, or you can buy an apartment. And in in many cases, that that uh, desire or or that expectation of what the bank is is fulfilled. And and especially in countries like the U.S. and Canada and so on. But in many other places, it's not. And if you, again, as a foreign born company, but that, that is looking to serve people in different countries in Latin America, and, and you understand them very well as, as you do coming from there. Yeah. Just, just, uh, I think we're, we're just going to see more people interested in this other model of like, okay, instead of putting my money in a local bank, I'd rather trust Leden with my money, or I, I'd rather trust, uh, you know, my own wallet with the money. Cause I, I want to keep it in Bitcoin and I, I want to keep it myself. So now there's a lot more choice and that's great. No, oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, we, one of the, the, the funnest things about this business is to hear from people things like, Hey, you're the first dollar loan I've ever been approved for. Hey, you're the first, uh, you're the first place I've ever been able to store dollars and earn interest. You know, the, the, before you, I was using cash and I couldn't pay anything online, et cetera. Those are to me, the most fulfilling parts of this business. And I want to talk to you about what you do today, because you also work in one of the coolest companies in Bitcoin. And I would love for you to tell me a little bit about what BitRefill is and what you are trying to achieve. Absolutely. So BitRefill is a product that I have loved since uh, 2017 or so when I was like starting to get into Bitcoin because it enabled me to send uh, phone top-ups to distant cousins and people in Venezuela. Since then, we have improved our offering quite significantly. Like we offer gift cards, uh, we've offered bill payments in some countries, and uh, we are looking to offer more more financial products uh, nowadays or, or more products that enable you to live on crypto. And there's multiple approaches to that. Maybe you can convince merchants locally to accept Bitcoin directly. So, so you, you pay BitRefill in this case, and we take care of that bill uh, or we take care of that, that like balance top up. So it's very exciting. Uh, right now we're, we're expanding uh, the product line, as I said, uh, bill payments to other countries uh, and perhaps other uh, new surprises that are coming up. Uh, that's very exciting. I recommend people check it out. It was more, they're one of the OG Bitcoin companies uh, and they're filled with great people. How do you see Bitcoin changing the lives of people in Venezuela in the next three to five years? The alternative economy that is not going through the banking system is going to grow, going to keep growing. Banks have a really hard time in Venezuela uh, issuing credits uh, in dollars or providing basic services that people want because of the impasse uh, between the United States and Venezuela. Having alternatives, as I mentioned earlier, uh, is, is a good thing. And Bitcoin is a part of those alternatives. So right now, if I want to pay for services in Venezuela, I have the option to use BitRefill and top up phone numbers. If I want to send something and I can use an Amazon account in the US and, and send something via courier to Venezuela, I can also do that. People still have this need of being able to use electronic money while not formally approved by, by someone 
outside. Like if you want to open a traditional Bank of America account as a Venezuelan, it's very hard for you to do so. But if you want to open a Latin account or if you want to open a cryptocurrency wallet, a Bitcoin wallet, easier, way easier to do so. So I think as people realize that this is an alternative that they can use that is trustworthy and that uh, it ties into the way that they can, they can make purchases, then I think people are going to just see see more value in it. And, and I think it's going to continue growing uh, with both with Bitcoin and with stablecoins. Where can our guests find more about your work? Twitter.com slash uh, A-L-E-G-W. Um, that's where I sometimes tweet. Also, I'm going to a few conferences this year, crypto-related. Yeah, you can write me an email at alejandro at bitrefill.com. If you think that um, you know you have a, a useful service to provide that uh, we could partner in, yeah, just uh, hit me up at any of those locations. Thank you so much, Ale. It's been uh, an, a pleasure and a privilege, and I hope to see you again very soon. Likewise, it's been a pleasure. Ale mentioned that we all hang out in bubbles, which unfortunately can lead us to groupthink and to assume that most people stick to a stereotype. Reality is much more nuanced, however. And that's why we need research. We need better information to confirm or reject our beliefs and to refine our mental models. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast. I wanted to learn and share how people use Bitcoin in ways that are simply not discussed in mainstream media. Through Alejandro's research in Venezuela, I learned that many more people than I expected were using Bitcoin. And they were using it in ways that were even surprising to me, who was there. Over time, projects like the Open Money Initiative will help us better understand how people are using this technology to solve their own problems and this will ultimately help us build better products. I believe that better research is needed and will help us learn how we can amplify Bitcoin's positive impact in the world. If you enjoyed this Because of Bitcoin episode, I would be very grateful for the five seconds it would take you to drop us a review and give us a rating on your favorite podcasting platform. This will really help us reach even more listeners. And if you'd like to learn more about Bitcoin, be sure to check out our newsletter by subscribing at letn.io. That's letn.io. Again, this was Mauricio Di Bartolomeo. Stay tuned for our next episode. And until then, muchas gracias y los quiero mucho. Chao, chao.